We are back. It's that time of the week. It's Flat Out RC podcast time, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. And the reason why I say that is that about 50% of this audience is actually not in Australia. So big shout out to everybody that is listening abroad and listening to primarily, we interview a lot of Australian people. Um, we have a lot of time difference challenges here so it's hard for me to coordinate people from overseas but uh i try to get some in and hope to have some more shortly i've got a few few ideas of some people that i want to have on so what have we got on for you today uh we haven't talked about gliding for a while so i've got a guy by the name of john copeland on he's actually been requested by a couple of different listeners and he's a guru on uh the gps triangle racing and gliding so we will have a good chat with john about all things gliding and, and GPS triangle racing as well. So stay tuned. But before we get to John, let's have a look at what's been on my mind. What has been on my mind? Well, we're, we're running towards the end of the year now. I feel as if our Christmas holidays down here in Australia is is almost upon us. And a little reminder that I normally take January off for the podcast uh, just to to take a breather, uh, you know, it's doing a weekly podcast. It's something that I enjoy and it's a bit of a routine now. I normally uh, record an interview during the week in the evening uh, after after work hours and then edit the podcast over the weekend. Uh, it's a Saturday that I'm recording the intros and outros, so it gives me a bit of time to get everything edited up and uh, ready to go for the Wednesday release. But uh, sometimes I just need to have a break from it. And you know what happens to me? We, if, you, if you're listening from abroad here in Australia, we generally it's summertime. We have a big, uh, a big holiday time over Christmas, and it's the it's the best time for me to have a break. I run my own business. All my customers are on holidays. I don't need to worry about anything. And the last thing I want to worry about when I'm in that that mode is the podcast, even though I do enjoy doing it. So uh, I will take January off. Normally finish the week before Christmas will be the last episode for the year. Uh, but uh, there aren't many weekly error modeling podcasts. I, I can't find many. I know there's people do fortnightly and stuff like that, but uh, I'd like to think that I'm one of the only or the very few. And, and we've done a fair few episodes as well. And I think this podcast, I can't find another one that is guest-based. Every week we have a guest. Uh, it's not just a bunch of mates chit-chatting about planes and drones and helis and things like that it's a it's a guest based program so i'm pretty proud of that and uh we'll keep on continuing as as long as we can as long as i'm willing and capable and able to so uh what has been on my mind uh i had a really good message uh come through from one of our guests that had been on the podcast down in uh, south australia telling me about the success of their come try day and i've banged on a fair bit over the years about uh about getting out there running come try days to expose people to the hobby and, and get them in because you know I was talking to a friend the other day about model airplanes and the industry and things like that and how you know say with this it was around this podcast and he said oh you should get some sponsors for the podcast I said industry is not interested industry doesn't have a lot of money to spend on marketing they're not interested or understand what I do or the value of what I do even though my reach you know the listening numbers have gone through the roof. Um, we're getting reasonable numbers um, now, I'd say. Uh, but 
they're not interested and they want to do their own thing. Um, but they don't do a lot. Some of the big guys do. But there's lots of pockets of people that are doing stuff, but there's no money in it. There's not a lot of money in the in the, in the in the hobby itself, but like people may think. But it got me thinking about the lack of numbers, the declining numbers, because the declining numbers is closely tied to the performance of the industry, that if you've got uh, a lot of people buying model planes and there's money flowing in, in the system. And hearing how this club in, in South Australia done a great job, I think they got about five new members and three of them came from the Come Try Day. And if we replicate that across all the different clubs uh, in the country, then that would be a step in the right direction. Really, it would be a step in the right direction. That Now, we've got, um, you know, we're starting to grow some numbers. Even my local club actually has declined in membership in the past year, which is surprising because it's a pretty good club and a, and a, and a big club at that. Uh, and you're going to get some natural attrition. You know, people do pass away, people give up on the hobby and things like that. But the whole aim in life is that you keep on getting a bit more than what you're losing or try to maintain it. And uh, I've banged on a bit about what I think is required. And, and in a nutshell, every action has a reaction is always my motto. Um, I'm all for one for getting out there and giving things a go and uh, still not enough is is, is happening Um I have heard of a few different clubs that are, that are running Come Try Days. The Atuka Club is going to be running one. Uh, the Werribee Club down here in Victoria runs Come Try Days. Uh, the Club Norlunga out in South Australia is running Come Try Days. And maybe some up in Queensland. But besides that, they're very, very few and far between. And we have an industry and an association network that is sitting on their hands just going along. And I, I'm scared that it's, it's it, we will realise when it's all too late. Um, we do have an aging demographic in the hobby down here in Australia and around the world. And uh, we can become very complacent when we have more senior people running the show that may not be looking as forward ahead as what other younger people might be looking at. And I'm um, not saying that I'm extremely young or, or extremely old and sort of sit in the mid middle of the road, but I want to be flying in 30 years' time and have the opportunity to keep on flying and buy products and stuff like that. But if you're 80 years of age, not there's many 80-year-olds running the hobby in, um, in 30 years' time, unfortunately, you're probably not going to be around. So we need to do something. People need to get off their, their bums uh, and do something. Uh, and, okay, people turn around and say, well, what are you doing, Andrew? Well, I'm talking about it. I'll be promoting uh, things for seven or eight years now. Um, when I used to sell model aeroplanes or in events and things like that and um, – and my forte is producing content, marketing, and stuff like that. So I talk about and encourage and motivate people, hopefully, to try to get off their bums and do something. And those that do actually get a result. That's the thing. That the clubs that go and run come try days are actually attracting some new members. Every time you get a new member, think about how much money goes back into the industry. Just one person. They have to buy a transmitter. They've got to buy batteries, lipos, models. And as we know, there's not many people that own only one model. So that one person could potentially in a year be worth $3,000 to a shop, $4,000 to a shop. I've got, I know plenty of people that spend tens of thousands of dollars a year on uh, on model aeroplanes. So if you multiply that and you, you know, think about this industry, what what's the value of four brand new aero modelers to you? over their lifetime, $30,000, dollars $100,000. It's a lot of money, and I think that's where I look at the industry and the associations to, to help um, 
invest in trying to grow that, supporting clubs. And then it's at the club level. One of the biggest concerns that the associations have is that, oh, we can't do it, we need the clubs. And the clubs are sitting on their hands, except for like some of the ones I mentioned, you know, the Chuka Club are really proactive. And I'll always help those clubs. Uh, that, the Chuka Club has reached out to me and I said, I'll help you for free. I will help you run your, your come try, I will promote your come, come try, I use my skill set to, to assist them. Um, my local club is not running anything that they seem to be interested in, in, in that. Okay, it's been really wet down here in Victoria. So where I live, yeah, we've got an excuse. It's a valid excuse. The fields are pretty wet. As I recall this, it's pretty warm and windy, so hopefully you know, we'll dry up some of the grounds. Uh, but, yeah, we've had a terrible sort of four-month period as far as weather goes and, and the ability to do those kind of things. But uh, you can always plan them and postpone them. Uh, you know, school holidays is a great time to, to run events, um, you know, come try events. So we just need some proactive people starting at the top, uh, still waiting, still waiting. I think I was probably mentioned this six months ago. And it is a bugbear of mine. People don't, some people don't like it when I get a bit political. But, hey, I have opinions. I have a podcast. There's a microphone in front of me. I've pressed record and we're recording this, so I might as well. Now, my favourite time of the podcast, it's guest time. It's a time where I get to find out more about a lot of different things, about people, their activities, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And I really love doing that, and I hope you do as well. This week we have, as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, uh, John Copeland it was requested by a number of different uh, listeners. Uh, and I, I was told, I've never met John, I didn't know who John was, but I was told that he was a bit of a guru when it comes to GPS triangle racing with gliders. Uh, now, he's going to tell us all about it, so I'm not going to jump the gun, but uh, John's been in the system flying for many, many years. Um, we'll cover all that. But, uh, yeah, gliders has become his thing. And stay tuned. It's a pretty interesting story. So let's get into it. John Copeland, all the way from South Australia. Let's go. I love it when I get to interview people that are outside of my home state of Victoria uh, because, you know, I've got plenty of contacts here. And we're heading over towards South Australia today and we're talking to a, a gentleman that I have had multiple people request this man to come on the podcast. John Copeland, welcome to the Flat Out RC podcast. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. We're going to be talking gliders, a lot of gliders today, uh, scale gliders, GPS triangle racing. You're a guru in it, apparently. Everybody said you're the guru. So we've got a lot to cover, but we always start at the beginning. And that beginning is how did you you get into aero modeling? Well, um, I've given this a bit of thought because um, now, now that I'm getting older, I sort of reflect a little bit on my life and uh, – a little bit of a long story. My dad, who passed away a couple of years ago, he always used to, he was 80. He always used to talk about, he was the baby of the family. And he always talked about his sister and how she brought him up. And she, he would always talk about things that he knew that happened when he was three or four years old. And I just basically always used to call bullshit. I said that <laughs> I just can't think how you can think back you have a memory from when you're three or four. And in the last, probably last five years, I've sort of thought to myself how, what, you know, what was my first thought? And my first thought was um, definitely um, the Apollo moon landing. And I can remember, distinctly remember four and a half watching the Apollo moon landing um, on TV. And um, it's since then, 
because I used to do that. I used to watch Bathurst like from when I was six years old. Oh, Bathurst! Really keen. I haven't missed a year. Really keen. Um, a really keen interest in aviation. So I love Apollo history. Anything to do with space program, I watch all those sorts of things. But obviously, the 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 spin-off from that is you know experimental aircraft jets and planes and all that and i've just been absolutely obsessed with that all my life and i can remember um, my dad um, when the apollo when they landed on the moon the apollo program was going um you used to be able to go to the petrol station and you'd buy these cardboard cutouts of the lunar module and in the wheaties packets there was you know little lunar modules and all that sort of stuff and i was just absolutely fascinated by that and i was too young to build it so dad would make it for me even though he wasn't really good with his hands but he would make them and i just think these things are fantastic and i always loved those sorts of things so that that stemmed into um probably later you know when i was maybe seven eight nine i can remember having heaps of those little rubber band powered balsa wood planes you'd buy in little plastic bags and the gliders and the planes and i'd get heaps of heaps of um you know, flight times out of those and heaps of interest, you know, just the smell of them and all that. And I had um, uh, my first proper model was a Aeroflight Dornier rubber band powered plane. And I reckon I had a couple of those. I reckon I did a really poor job of building it because it was really difficult. I think even now it would probably still be reasonably difficult to build one of them because they were all sheeted and they come with the printed sheeted, the sheets. Do you ever do you remember those, Andrew? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, and then I had a couple of Aeroflight Falcon gliders, like hand tow gliders, and um, I got those. And then uh, around um, 1974, when the uh, Wakery um, World Champs were on, and a bit late, and around that time, um, they uh, Wakery sold heaps of those foam uh, push together gliders, and I just flew them. I bought heaps. I think my mum bought heaps of those for me and towed them up, and I had these magnificent flights with those. And yeah, as a, as a child, you remember those sorts of things. But you know, just the Aeroflight kits, the uh, rubber band models, and the balsa gliders. I think I had a, I had a, um, the probably the best glider I had was an Aeroflight Kestrel, which was the biggest. Uh, it was huge at the time. I think it was like one meters or one meter or something like that. But it had a little scale looking cockpit on it. And I absolutely love that thing. And I can't remember actually what happened to it. I think it got destroyed when I tried towing it up once. But, um, yeah, but I had one of those. Question on that. Yeah. The first model that I got was an Aeroflight Nomad. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a tarp kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, and I never actually was successful with it. Uh, but did you actually, like, have a, a string line and then just run with it and it'd go up okay and then you'd stop and it'd Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can I can remember with those foam gliders. I used to tow them up pretty high. Like I used to use, I used to sit on the hull. Reeled out one day, we had a bit of wind, and I reeled out the the um the wool. I think I had wool at the time. Oh, yeah. I reeled it out just about the length of the oval, and it towed up, and I went up really, really high. Um, uh, you know, it obviously would have come down again, but um, yeah, I used to tow them up. Um, yeah, the, the Falcon gliders seemed to be a little bit better. I. I thought they were a little bit better than a Nomad. I never had a Nomad, but I knew people that did. And the Nomad was pretty fragile because that had the build-up fuselage, I reckon, didn't it? That's right. Yeah. Whereas the Falcon had the solid fuselage and that was um, a little bit more hardy. But, you know, I did the tissue, tissue and dope thing and all that. So That's as soon right. as it landed, where it put a hole through the wing and all that. But, yeah, I did I did that. And um, I, I was, we didn't have heaps of money, so we just I think I got one of the Falcons that, that – 
um, Cubs when I was at Cubs as a Christmas present, which I just thought that was fantastic. Um, my cousin was, um, he was, we had a, actually had a hobby, a model store in Wakery, which is, you know, every small town used to have a model store back in those days. And my cousin, who was, um, he's about five or six years older than me, he really right into um, control lines. So I used to go and watch him and his mates and they'd, they'd have a, they'd give all the um, control line planes. I think they had like a Viper and, and homemade wings and all that sort of stuff. And they just put the aeroplanes in the wheelbarrow. You all go down the oval and they just sit there all day flying these things, and they'd have an, they were really good at it, they'd have an absolute ball. So, as a little kid, I used to go and watch that. And then later, um, later in my life, when I did get into radio control, he actually taught because he got into radio control also. He taught me how to fly a radio control plane, which was pretty cool. How did you get into radio control? Well, I had after after all the pre flight and all that, um, then I got, I was, I, uh, sort of only just did that sort of sporadically. I did it a lot when I was, you know, probably 10, 11, 12. But then after that, um, I got into motorbikes, got into then, you know, girlfriend, cars, <laughs> the, usual. the whole thing. And it basically all, I, I didn't do any aero modding there for quite a number of years while I was going through that process. But then um, my girlfriend that I was about to marry, um, for some reason, and I don't know why, we were walking around the street and went into a toy shop and they had an Aeroflight Telstar in yeah, there, I remember them. Yeah, it was within my price range. I thought, ah, oh, I might buy that, and I just bought it. And then I saved up. Well, you had to get radio gear for it. It was a three. I think that was a three channel That's at the time. Yeah. So I saved up the pennies and I bought a Samwa Stack Four. So that would have been that's some um, thirty six years ago. This is. I bought a Samwa Stack Four and um, then built this thing up. Was there a bit of a weird? model comparatively to other Aeroflot kits and they had the foam core wing that you had to sort of um, laminate Shoot. the bolster onto and then cover and um, build that up and uh, oh well so well I just go back a little bit I did I did get into control line there was a period where I was going through high school where um, because what well, yeah that's right because what actually happened is that um, I went to the rubber band little pre-flight one stage and what I used to do I used to worry a lot as a kid and my parent, I'd worry that there's something wrong with me. I'd listen to all these stories and I'd think, oh, there's something wrong with me. I said, mum and dad got sick. They went, took me to the hospital one night and the doctor said, get the lad a hobby, right? So dad was really diligent then as he was sick of me worried about everything that he went out and bought me a, an OS 20. And my uncle had this really old, it was a brand new kit, but it was a really old kit. And I can't remember the life of me, what it was. It was it would have been something from the 50s or the 60s, I reckon, by the by the way. Well, from what I remember, it was a really solid build-up fuselage and a planked balsa wing control line plane. And um, I built that up and not knowing, I had to get my cousin to show me how to profile the wing and all that sort of stuff. And I painted, it would have weighed a tonne. And um, I finished it all off. And then the good old dad, who had no skills at all with his hands, he wanted my cousin to show to teach him to fly it so he could teach me to fly hmm. it. So we went off to fly it. And, of course, it, dad had to go, destroyed it. He felt really bad. So then he went out and I think he, later he bought me a Aeroflight Spitfire. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so good trainer plane. Up. What's that, sorry? Good trainer plane. Yeah, well... <laughs> Yeah, well, so um, I built that up, painted it all up exactly as on the box and all that. Got my cousin. He went out and we, he um, taught me. He well, he went out and he test flew it. He taught me how to fly it. I think I had a few goes with it, and 
for some, I think then we moved away. So I, I didn't continue flying with it. I think at one point I had a go at flying it on my own and crashed it and um, ended up with just the wing. And so a few years after that, I thought, oh, look, I'll get this thing going. And I made the wing up, just made the wing into a, a control on plane. I actually could fly that quite well. It was a lot easier to fly, yeah. um, I found. So I used to fly, I flew that, oh, flew it, crashed it, flew it, crashed it, went through all that. Then, yeah, then had a break, you know, bikes, cars, girls, job. And um, then got into the, yeah, to the radar controlled. Um, I built this thing up with the stack four and used the same OS 20 that dad had bought me for the control line plane. It was the only, only motor I had. And that was a very reliable motor. And um, then, uh, yeah, my cousin taught me to fly. Now he always, he always liked flying. Um, so he always wanted to take the wheels off the plane so he could hand launch. We said it's a lot safer to do that. So <laughs> I did that. And that also made it easy because I used to fly. Once I did learn how to fly, he taught me to fly. Flew it, no worries. It was a pretty easy thing to fly. And then I'd just go out in the paddock and just fly it. And I just flew it and flew it and crashed it and um, just kept flying that thing for years. Um, built uh, in that time, I tried scratch building a plane, which was sort of semi successful. I had a few other Aeroflight RC planes. And then I got a, um, I, I, yeah, so I was sort of basically doing that on my own because there wasn't too many people in the bakery doing it. Um, and uh, well, and then, I was, I was flying this Telstar. I thought I was pretty good at it, flying on my own. And then I found there was a club up in Loxton. So I thought, oh, well, I'll go out in Loxton and um, I'll fly with these guys up there. So I get up there and um, these, the guys said, oh, you can fly a plane. Oh, look, mate, I can fly a plane. No worries <laughs> yeah. at all. Yeah. But I don't yeah. need anyone with me. And what I'd done at the time is you were using just normal dry cell batteries in them in the radio. And uh, what I'd done in that two weeks leading up to going up to Loxton is I, I thought I'd convert it over to NICADs. So I can bought a NICAD pack, put it in there, hadn't flown it until I got to Loxton. So yeah, I can fly, no worries. Started the plane up, threw it off. It did a big spiral dive and destroyed itself right in front of yeah. everyone. And I thought, what the hell's going on? And what had happened is those stack fours, um, what I didn't realise because I didn't read the instruction is you had to add an extra cell. Oh. Because, because it went from dry seal up to NICAD and the NICADs weren't as high voltage. So I didn't do that, obviously, and the plane went off the air and that's mm. why I crashed. So it was pretty embarrassing. I think I fixed it up after. But I did end up going up to Loxon quite a few times after that and they let me fly there again. So Redeem yourself. Cool. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so you, what happens after the, the old Telstar? What did you progress Well, into? so then there's, so I had a few other power planes and all that, but then I got a... Um, I reckon a few guys up at Loxton used to fly like thermal gliders and I, I I thought, oh, that's okay. But then I got myself a Kyosho Cirrus, which was basically exactly the same as a Grotner Cirrus, a rebadged Grotner Cirrus. So that was a three-metre glider. You know, it looked sort of like a scale glider with no ailerons. And um, I covered it, the cover, built it all up, covered the wings with solar techs, and I just fell in love with that thing and I would just fly that forever. And um, I had I flew that literally till the servos wore out. The servos I was flying it like years after I initially started flying. And then, as I said, the beauty of having a farmer's paddock near my house, I just just flew it every weekend. I'd be out there, and um, I got sick of the bungee. I, I launched with a bungee. I got sick of that, so I made my own winch. I just found some plans in a magazine or something, made my own winch, and then I'd winch the thing up. 
And um, oh, I just had that had just an absolute ball. I easily got two hour flights with it and all that sort of stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, it was um, it was fantastic. Yeah, one day I actually got it up that high and a front come through and actually physically blew the glider backwards. So I could do nothing about light. I blew the glider backwards and it just disappeared. And I thought, well, well, that's the end of that. And this was years after. And um, so I got my uncle. He had his um, private pilot's license. So I rang him up and I said, oh, would you take me to a fly? And we found it about a kilometre away, upside down in the paddock. It just cracked the canopy. So uh, he landed. Obviously, I drove out there where it was, picked it up, took the battery home, charged it up, and went back out of the paddock and flew it again. Yeah. 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 But, but yeah, so I had that. And um, then that sort of really started the glider the whole glider thing. So then we met up, I met up with some um, guys down at um, Northern Soaring Club down closer to Adelaide and then got into, you know, we would build our own. They had, I, I joined that club and then we they would have their own thermal glider competitions and F3B and, and go slope flying and all that, but everyone was building their own models. So, you know, of course I started, you know, building my own models, foam core models and all that sort of stuff and got right into it. And we were all sort of of the same, it had had definitely had the same interest, and then um, after that, um, meeting these guys, we got into um, scale gliders. So I bought a, um, I bought a, a multiplex ASW twenty two, I think, which was the you know the hugest glider I'd ever seen or ever imagined. It was four meters, which is mm. you know, it was, but at the time. Um, it was pretty good, and then after that, those guys we got into aerotone. We just uh, yeah, really never looked back from there. We still did the thermal glider and F3B and all that, but for me, the probably once someone bought out a, I think that was about the time when the first molded model come into existence in Australia, and um, that sort of lost a lot of interest then after that because you could just come out with this molded model and just blow everyone away, and you know we'd all, we'd all been building our own models up until then or making kits mainly. And um, yeah, that sort of killed it for me. And I think after that, the sort of that, those competitions in our club died off, but they sort of picked up everywhere else. So you're pretty much a glider guy now, though. Yeah, I am. Well, yeah. So that's that's with the, the aero towing. Yeah, once we started this aero towing, that because I think I got a ASW22. A mate of mine, Peter Melders, he had a he he ran the Unley model shop, and I bought the ASW22 off him. He got a DG300 at the same time, and then another guy, Paul Clift, he built a uh, Ralph Limon Kestrel, I think. Yeah. And um, so we just said, we, well, we've got to have, have a go at this aerotone bizzo. So he made a just a trainer type plane with a 124 stroke in it. And we just used to, every weekend, I'd be driving down from Wakery and we'd go on aerotone and I'm just absolutely obsessed. We were all obsessed by it and um, just had an absolute blast doing it. So then we just got, I built up some bigger and bigger tugs. I, I got a model design Diablo and I found a, um, uh, I think it was about a 76cc chainsaw motor at the rubbish dump. Oh, yeah. And um, I cut that out of the chainsaw and I think Paul made a prop boss for it. And that was an old, um, that was an old points ignition motor. Uh-huh. And uh, supposedly asked to start. But once it went, it was fine. It was, it cost me, I think, about $20 all up. And uh, we had, yeah, lots of fun. I mean, the Diablo wasn't easy to fly comparatively, but uh, we had lots of fun with that. And uh, yeah, then we just then they got into the 62s and OA type planes and all that, and just did aero towing. So you're either flying a tow plane or flying the scale glider. So yeah, so I've sort of done both um, for a reasonably long period of time. It's only probably just recently I've sort of got out of the aero side of it. 
Yeah, all the tow the yeah the um, tow pilots side of it. We were having a bit of a chat before we got on on air, and and you talked about um, getting you know starting to make your own models and 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 creating a business. So it was. It, it sounds like you had this constant, you know, evolution in in glider flying, and you know, out of necessity, you start building models and that kind of thing. How did you end up having your own business and building building gliders? Well, at, at the time, uh, a scale glider was a, a good scale glider was a fiberglass fuselage and foam core wings, and you'd cover the wings in something, whether it be plywood, balsa wood, or and cover them. You know, for I'm talking for a modern scale. So I was only ever interested really in modern scale gliders mm. because I I I don't know. I've always I have done in 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 amongst that time I did do some. About 26 years ago, I did some full size gliding, and I've always because living at Waycree, yeah, there was always glider competitions on as a kid. There was you you could stand outside and there'd always be a glider flying in a thermal or whatever. So I I just absolutely loved modern gliders flying. I just loved watching them. I just thought they were so. And even now, you know, it just it's still you know how graceful they are and how yeah, fantastic. I'm with you. I love modern gliders. They look yeah you know, they look like the flying fast even just sitting on the ground basically so i i, I love them and at, at the time to get a a good scale glider kit for one of those was a fiberglass fuselage a set of foam core wings high-end ones were covered in obichi and um there was people uh there were some people that could afford to import those uh, but they, they were just really to, just to get them because there was no internet or anything at that time just to get them was difficult because you had to send you know, you had to mail through a magazine or something to get them. You had to know, or you had to know someone. And, you know, the Victorian guys, they had um, John Gottschalk who used to go overseas and he would know all those guys. So he'd bring stuff back with him every now and then or he'd know contacts so people would do it. But I just couldn't afford it. So um, I did I did get a – I got the, had the ASW-22 for a long time. I flew that. I was really – because it was comparatively back then, it was so expensive for me. I, I built it put it together and um, it just sat in my room for probably six months because I was just too scared to fly it. it was a and then one day I thought, what the hell is the point of having this thing sitting there? So I just grabbed it and I went and threw it off a hill near my house. And it was sort of then after that, I just put it on the winch and just flew it, flew the wings off of it basically. And um, then, um, yeah, we had that. And then I managed to get a, um, a Pat Teakle six metre, ASW 22, which was a very busy, the multiplex one wasn't very scale looking at all. It was basically an Alpina with a T tail. And um, so I got this Pat Teakle six metre one and I, and I built that up. And they were actually, I, I got this kit and they were actually built in the UK and um, they were designed just to fly off the slope. So the wings were actually, so it had a polyester fiberglass fuse. It looked magnificent. It was absolutely huge at six meters. Now that was the biggest thing any of us had ever seen. Um, uh, it had poly, it had um, foam core wings with um, uh, a thin obichi on them, but they were glued on with latex. Yeah. So latex is extremely flexible. So it wasn't designed for flat field flight at all. It was designed just to purely purely throw off the slope. So I built this thing up. Had a few issues with working you know learning you learning issues of working with it and all that because it would do all these all the polyester on the when you paint polyester to paint the wings it was going all funny and all that sort of stuff but eventually got it all going and myself and my mate gary we were so keen to fly this thing that um, i think the 
because what was happening is that they developed a national competition for scale gliders and the scale glider and I, I went to it once and yeah i didn't do very well and seeing all these other people there with what they've got and they're building all these old time gliders and doing a magnificent job and all that and so i really got keen i just look used to look forward to this competition each year so i think it was about two weeks out when i got this 22 going i built my undercarriage which i've still got it's an absolute mess never really worked that well but um and uh, we were so eager to fly this thing we went out and we, we were doing winch launching with a six meter glider <laughs> right so we went out and it was a howling gale right we went out to the paddock and i thought i've got to fly this thing i've got to fly this thing and uh <laughs> my mate gary he says that i tried to stop you but i don't think he did because we were <laughs> so keen to see this thing fly and uh, we launched it uh, we launched it by hand because it was so windy and the thing it was six meters long so it went up about six meters did a 90 degree turn and just destroyed itself into the ground mm. right and i literally went home and sat down and cried i was just so devastated by the whole thing and it was at the, the fuselage was broken in three places the wings were destroyed the whole thing was written off and i gave up era i said that's it i'm done so i think for about six months after that i didn't fly and then one day i got the courage up and i made up a jig and fixed the fuselage up and made a whole new set of wings for it and eventually got it flying again the wings that i'd made were a lot better because purely because they were epoxied together rather than latex and um, got it all going we went out and we said no this time we're going to aero tow it right so we aero towed it it did exactly the same thing it went shot up in the air and i managed to get off the line but i managed to save it this time and just land it without crashing it and what we'd worked out is the instructions never the, the instructions were one piece of a4 bit of paper and i knew nothing about wing incidences and all that and the tailplane incidence was at six degrees positive elevator right so you had no hope of, of flying this thing so we all sat down together and worked out what the hell's going on with this thing worked that out on the field so we stacked the front of the elevator up with a bit of balsa or plywood or something bolted it on took it for a fly thing flew fantastic right you know for the rest of its life and so i think i eventually sold it so yeah that was lucky so i did actually i think the next year i took it in that competition i can't remember whether how well i did with it but i flew in that competition so um then yeah then the necessity was i've got to build my own gliders so um i knew lots of people at the gliding club and there was lots of um rich japanese pilots would fly it there so they would have the absolute state-of-the-art gliders and um, so I worked out, well, how am I going to make these? How am I going to make a scale model of it? And um, so I thought, well, I can go out. I made a big set of um, M big set of calipers out of MDF to actually measure the fuselage. So what I did is I got a three view and then I made these big calipers and I went and at points along the fuselage actually measured the full size glider fuselage. And then I um, got an overhead projector and blew the three view up on the wall with a big bit of paper and then divided everything by three and um, made a third scale, I think a third scale ASH 26 was the first glider I made, I reckon from memory. And made it up, I made an MDF skeleton out of it, filled it all with foam and then covered it all with fiberglass and bogged it and painted it and all that and made a plug and um, made my first mold, I think out of that one. So um, yeah, yeah, so I did that and um, yeah, that, that glider was really, and uh, I think, yeah, um, 
I had uh, I, I had bought a, a big Nimbus glider, big Nimbus two glider, which was a, a I think part of a Rosenthal kit or something like that, and um, I uh, built that up, and that was I reckon that was nearly eight meters. It was absolutely huge in at that time, and um, I uh, wanted to make it exact scale, so I actually gel coated the whole thing like a full size glider. Was I had been out hanging around the gliding club a fair bit and knew the processes they used and I wanted to make it look exactly scale so I gel coated the things so consequently it was reasonably heavy it was about 19 kilos or something and um, I went in the Australian championships and won it with that glider but the problem was that there was only a few tugs that would tow it up and it was always marginal because it was so heavy it flew fine once it was up there and it looked absolutely magnificent because I'd spent hours and hours gel coating this thing it was gel coats like sort of using runny carbog like so i sprayed it on i reckon i got the guys at the gliding club to spray it for me sprayed it on then you'd have to rub it right back from you know about oh, probably 120 grit back to 2000 grit and That's buff so the cool. whole thing and keep the shine on it and all that and then if you've got any spots you could spot fill it and all that sort of stuff but it looked absolutely magnificent this glider i was really happy with it and um at the time, it was about, I think that was about 1997. At the time, that's when the internet started. Yeah. And um, I'd got I'd got the internet in 1997 to listen to the Sojourner rover land on Mars. Right? And, um, yeah, that's yeah, that's how I remember <laughs> why I got the internet. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, you never had, there was nothing like Facebook, no forums or anything like that, but you had, like, email lists. I don't know, do you ever... Do you, do you remember that or you ever heard of that? What was it again? Well, you had a, had like, if you had a special interest group, there was no, there was no Facebook or forums. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. It was a, there was an email list. Oh, really? Right? Yeah, yeah. It actually started like a, you know, how you, if you've got your, you've got your emails and you've got a, you might have a box for your credit card or your banking or something like that. You'd actually have that and there was some way you'd join that. And you were on a list with all these scale glider guys from all around the world. Yeah. Right, so we had that. So as, a, as I thought, oh, this internet's not a bad thing. You get in contact with all these people over the world. So what I did is I actually, because I'd won the, the Australian um, National Scale Glider Championship with this Nimbus, I thought I'd advertise it. I'd advertise it for, well, at the time it was a ridiculous price, I thought, a ridiculously high price just to see what I got. And a guy from America bought it. And I thought, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit, that's pretty cool. And he said, oh, have you got any other gliders? You're building, and I said, "Oh, well, I've built this. I'm building this ASH26." He said, "Oh, I'd be really interested in that." And I, an ASH26, um, the glider that we had at the gliding club was actually a self-launcher. Oh, so yeah. it had a, so it's got a, a full-size propeller that pops out the fuselage, and it's got a little Rotax motor in the bottom of the fuselage. It's belt-driven, and I thought, "Wow, that." That sort of stuff was I, I like creating pain for myself. <laughs> I thought that'd be really cool to get that working in a model. So I told this guy from America about that, and he he was he was really keen on it, and he he had heaps of money. So I I developed I built the I built the glider, and then I I, I built the glider. I built a, I think I built an aerotow version, and then I built a fuselage and built an exact scale. With this whole self-launch system so i got a i reckon i've got some company to make up a wooden propeller because it had to be reverse pitch so what i actually use is a 90 size helicopter motor in there backwards and then i've got a fema onboard starter kit so there's a lot of stuff going on uh, in there yeah. 
had the standard head, so I wrapped the head with copper because I'd seen a guy up at Loxham with a boat do the same thing, and then I sold it up a radiator, and that went in the boom, and then I made up a heap of moulds and moulded up a, um, a, a leg for the propeller and all this sort of stuff because I had made a self-launch. I had a DG500 multiplex glider, and I had made a um, self-launch pod for that, and that had a little, um, I reckon it was an OS40, and it stuck, had it stick it on the top of a pylon. So you used to hold the pylon up, flick starter, and then the thrust would keep the pylon up. And then when the, when the motor switched off, when it ran out of fuel, it would just drop down in the fuselage and the doors would shut. It was all sort of spring loaded and all that sort of stuff. It was extremely messy because you got this beautiful glider with all this methanol all over it. But it was, it enabled me to fly my scale gliders without a winch on my own. Um, and we did that, and that was a bit problematic. But anyway, I got this 26 nearly going, and this guy said he wants to come out, fly out to watch the test flight. So I never met this guy, talked to him on an email list. He brought the Nimbus off me. And um, so he shows up at my door, absolutely nicest guy you could ever meet, and he stayed at our house for, I don't know, three or four days. I hadn't quite finished it. And we went out to the gliding club, and I'd... Um, I connected up the glow plug to the wrong battery and blew the glow plug. And he had to get his flight. He missed out on the test flight by about 10 minutes. <laughs> right. But he flew back to America, he ended up buying, he said, I'll have four of them. So he ended up buying four of these, which I just thought was fantastic. So I started selling a few of these. I, at the time, I had my own auto repair business that my wife and myself were running. And um, we'd been doing that for about, 12 years and in the meantime I'd, I'd come home after a flat out day there and i'd be doing this molding up these gliders and machining up like the amount of parts you need to machine up to get this um self-launch thing going was just incredible i had to make a flywheel you had to machine the flywheel on the crankshaft because i couldn't machine things accurately enough otherwise and all this sort of st stuff and um so in the end i used a proper heli motor with a um, computer CPU fan on it, I think that worked well to do that, and then the, had the onboard starter system in there. It was really complex, but um, it, I did quite a few times in competitions and all that, and it was it was always a showstopper. That was for sure because you never knew what was going to happen with the thing. But um, yeah, so I was building these kits in, at the time, and um, then I got I started getting more and more orders. I started building a few more. Um, molds i made i made a fox i made it had a fox i had that and i think i had a tow plane a basic tow plane we started getting more orders and we were sort of getting sick of running the auto repair shop so i said well, why don't we give up and just give this a go so my wife um well i was going to say reluctantly agreed but i was pretty pretty driven to do it and um we so we did that and because i've been working flat out for 12 years at this other at this other business and i just thought i needed a break so I thought working at home would be really good. And um, so then people, so originally I was just selling the fiberglass fuse kits and the foam cores. I had my own foam cutter, make the fiberglass components, pack them up in a box and send them off. And that, that wasn't too bad because it wasn't too time consuming. But then people started wanting, oh, can you make me a whole glider ready to fly? And they were willing to pay for it and all this sort of stuff. And that was taking me, because I was on my own, um, it was taking me a long time to build these things and I probably wasn't charging enough, but also, yeah, the market sort of demanded what you could charge at the time. What were they? What, how much would it cost for a model? Oh, well, I think that I reckon at the time the kits, I think an ASH 
26 kit, like just the bare kit, was about $700 or something like that. That's cheap. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. Well, it is now, but you know, it's still. Yeah, it's, you imagine there's a lot of work involved in that because I made my own oven to make my canopies, and although I made it, mm. had a new way of making canopies, I used to suck them into a mold, which made them work really well. And um, a guy, yeah, a guy called Murray Wills, he sort of come up with that idea, and he he um, used to use to get an element out of a uh, out of a stove, and old you know the old circular elements out of a stove and he made a wooden handle for it he used to hold this element and melt the melt the plastic and then suck it up into a mold and i thought that that seemed a bit dangerous plus my canopy was getting a bit big so i got a guy to wind up some proper elements and made a little oven and that works but works an absolute treat and i still use that method today like still because you can make a cheap polyester mold and it's sucking into a negative that was always the hardest thing if you're going to build a scale glider is to make the canopy yeah. all the rest is easy um so yeah so i um yeah so people wanted more and more it was i was getting more and more work and then um we had this email list still going so yeah there's heaps of stuff going on there you'd be on there every night talking to guys in america and all that and then um the night the planes hit the twin towers that list basically went black and i turned around watched the tv and seen that happening and that basically killed i can't remember getting any business after that and i reckon really? i reckon some of the guys because they were sort of they were high-end people that were buying these things at the time because there wasn't a lot of stuff available you know there might have been in europe and all that but there wasn't a lot of stuff available and, and um i haven't heard from some of those guys since then so i reckon perhaps some of them may have, may have passed away in the in the twin towers oh, but basically yeah basically killed the killed the business overnight and um, so I was, yeah, I basically packed up shop and sort of um, after, you know, trying and trying, I packed up shop, lost, you know, lost a fair few dollars in orders and all that sort of stuff and uh, went back to my trade. But a couple of guys from America did contact me and they they wanted me to, um, I come up with an idea of building a STEM 10 glider. And they said, we'll finance you to build this STEM 10 glider. So I agreed to that. and. Um, built that sort of in my while well, still working sort of thing from memory I reckon but there was that was is that, you do you know what a stem 10 is not really I can find oh, it's out a, it's, a, it's a really yeah it's it's a probably the most complex scale glider you could get to date it's a side-by-side -side two-seater that's got um um oh, trailing type, yeah trailing yeah. arm type retractable suspension and it's got a nose the nose pops out and it's got a propeller that flicks out like a pocket knife oh, sort of yeah thing. i'm looking at it now it's all spring loaded the motor's mounted under the wing oh, and all that it's a lot of work so <laughs> i come up with this brilliant idea because i just love the look of them i reckon that there was a guy in in, in adelaide that owned one and it was just a phenomenal looking glider and um they are the most complex full-size glider you can get and um, they require the most amount of work and all that sort of stuff to keep them flying but i thought i'd build this thing and i went through heaps of trial and error with it but eventually got an electric version going um, and that was before lipos came out so i had to use i think it was 32 nymis to run this thing and um 32 nymis would give the motor a two and a half minute motor run time um but i put i did this thing actually worked out quite well and i got a guy an aircraft welder in sydney to make up a jig and he welded up the undercarriage so i made that and that all uh, then i made the suspension for it 
made all the mechanism for it exactly the same as full size so it had electric screws so it looked very scale when it was flying i got the propeller sort of working but i couldn't get the nose to retract reliably over it but um I flew it with the nine wires. It actually flew. It flew quite well, but as I said, the motor only had a two and a half minute run. So if you get up high enough, which didn't have heaps of power, and then after that, lipos come out. So I bought a big set of lipos from American. I think they cost me like twelve hundred dollars at the time. Oh, gee. But that up that just about doubled the power and gave it a seven minute motor run time. So I could actually go out with that thing after work and you could fly it for seventeen minutes with no lift, just doing engine on, engine off beat ups basically. So you had this. Mm eight meter glider that looked fantastic once the undercarriage was folded up and flying that around so i ended up making up a kit for one of the guys and then the other guy got impatient so i sold him the one that i'd been flying for 12 months and i had it around to all the you know the scale glider shows and all that sort of stuff i'd flown it around there quite a bit and that was that glider was pretty successful actually i was pretty happy with that but i've only just recently because i've revamped it a couple times um, knowing what I've learned through building GPS gliders, and I actually just recently sold it to a good mate of mine in New Zealand. So he's hopefully going to keep the STEM 10 going because I've got a bit sick of it. Mm. And I think everyone's got sick of seeing it. Um, but um, yeah, so we've got that going. And then um, uh, once uh, I had, I think I won the Australian National Scale Glider Championship with that glider. And then Martin Simons wrote a really nice article about it. And I went in some overseas magazine and a UAV company from Western Australia, Cena. And they just rang, I was on holidays. I can still remember I was, where I was on holidays in Ballarat in a news agent looking at a model airplane magazine. And I got this phone call from this guy. And he said, oh, you know, could you make that into a UAV? And I said, oh, yeah, of course I could. And you know, not thinking about it, just say, yes, you can. And um, so I built a, um, a weird looking version of it. It was here, it had to be a V-tail version. So I built a STEM 10 for him. He he paid me okay to do it. I went over to Perth and he flew me over to Perth to meet him. We had a bit of a talk. And um, so it was basically a STEM 10 with a pot on it with a, um, what did it have in it? I reckon it had a, a, a DL-100 DL or something, I reckon, in it or something like that. Oh, no, that one had a Zenoa 62 with a pusher prop V-tail and all that. And then I made this weird-looking retractable undercarriage floor for it. And um, I sent it over to him and all that. I don't think that one ever flew, but then they contacted me a couple of years later and they said they've got some finance. They want to build a, a serious version, which was basically use a STEM 10 fuselage with a V-tail again, but make it four and a half metre trainer type wing for it with tricycle undercarriage. It was going to be a camera, uh, like a, a, a oh, yeah. surveillance type camera type aircraft. So they actually paid me quite well to do that. So I actually stopped work and worked on that uh, so i had to design and build it in five weeks i actually employed a guy another aero modeler mate of mine who's very good at machining i actually employed him and together i i, I was doing all the composite work he was doing the machining work i got the thing going in five weeks it looked pretty cool it was cool to side ride too and um, i built up a, a pod the same as I'd done for the STEMI version. It was a round pod and it had to have a DLA, a, sorry, a, D, a DL100. I built that and I had to have the um, uh, muffler all encased in this pod. So I, I made up a composite muffler, which was a bit of work, but it, it all worked. And then he, as, as, we, as I was building this thing, I got it all finished and I sent it off to him. And he, then he's telling me, oh, look, the people that invested in his company, they're flying over from Malaysia and they're going to be there for the test flight and all that. I thought, oh, really? I thought, well, 
okay, that's a pretty big deal. And I said, look, I'm not 100% confident in, in that exhaust system. And I explained it to him because it didn't have a lot of cooling. And he said, look, just make a, another engine pod, but use all standard, like D, another DA100 with the canisters on it and all that. So within a week, I just quickly, I had very basic CAD program and a foam core cutter. I made up a, like a real weird looking engine pod that looked like the head of ET. And uh, that's basically the best way to describe it. And I took that on the plane with me when I flew over. And um, we spent a week getting this thing going and um, with a heap of other people, people from all around the world and um, a guy called Bob Young from Silvertone Radio in Sydney, which you've probably heard of him. Uh, he was there as an observer and there's other people there, a guy doing the camera and a guy from um, uh, Germany who they, that company ran, the, they did the telemetry for the Red Bull Air Racing and all that. They were all there and they were augmenting all this air, um, autopilot into it and all that. Mm -hmm. Long story short, had a great time. Um, I wasn't gonna, the, the, another guy was gonna do the test flying. <clears throat> he chickened out at the end, gave it to me. I did the test flight in front of everyone. I thought, wow, well, okay, not much pressure. And I didn't even know if this thing high. <laughs> but the guy running the autopilot, he was really switched on. So he basically fly it with a, with a transmitter that's connected to a cord to his autopilot setup. So um, uh, we went up and had to do a stall. And they really didn't want me to do a stall with us. I said, we've got to do a stall today with a stall. So did a stall. It stalled at 45 kilometers an hour or something like that. No worries. It flew like an absolute dream. It flew like a trainer. I was flying it around. And it was up pretty high and the motor cut out. <clears throat> and they, everyone just, oh, my, you know, everyone just said, oh, that's the end of it sort of thing. And they just basically started walking away. And I said, it'll be fine. So I just brought it down absolutely flat out and it had heaps of drag on it and i got the autopilot guy to read out to me the airspeed as i was going downwind and i stayed you know 30 kilometers an hour over the stall speed and just kept it absolutely did this beautiful greaser landing in front of everyone, everyone. <laughs> and after that i was the hero that was flying it for the rest of the week basically yeah. so it was a, it was a really good time it was extremely frustrating like Cash flow wise, <clears throat> it was extremely frustrating, but um, it was, we got, met some really good people. And to be part of that, was a, by the end of the week, we were actually flying it over the horizon and uh, like fully autonomously flying it over the horizon. And uh, one time it was a dot on the horizon. And he said, I've lost it. You've got to fly it back manually. And I had to fly this dot back. That's and it took forever to get back and landed. And so, yeah, so unfortunately, that all. That all fell in a heap after a while, but I met other people there. I did other a bit of other UAV work. I sort of did UAV work, which was basically just building the, the, the airframe of a UAV is the absolute minor part. It's all about the electronics and what it what it does. And that I did the I did the composite part of it. Look, learned heaps about composites and all those sorts of things. I did that for on and off for about eight years until um i just got sick of it basically and because in that time i really wasn't doing a lot with my hobby because i was doing so much composite work i was just sick of it sick of doing it by the time i wanted to do my own thing um but i had learned a lot so but you know fortunately i had my trade to trade to fall back on that i could go and keep doing it but um what ended up with that um with that plane like that that uav um i don't know to be honest <clears throat> i think it went i think it went over to malaysia I think that's the company that financed it. They um, 
they uh yeah they i reckon they took it back over there but yeah i don't really know you can actually you can still google so i do google searches every now and then and it comes up so yeah that's an amazing that's project that's, a, that's yeah a... look it was good it was it, uh, it said as i said to you before when we were talking andrew it's i in hindsight i probably regret doing it but it was just something it was just something i had to do i just couldn't stop myself i thought i just always wanted to turn aero modeling and the composite work into a business and i did i, I did lots of interesting things I, I did some work for newmont mining research where and that started out through uavs but i ended up making slings that went under helicopters and all this sort of stuff i did heaps of stuff yeah uh, heaps of interesting stuff and learned lots about it and as i said met lots of interesting people it was really hard work it was really hard on me myself it was really hard on my my family but um yeah coming out the other side of it it's given me a lot of experience at, at life and it's given me a lot of experience at um multitasking that is for sure um so yeah it's um it's um it was you know while i, you know, I do think it was a regret i probably wouldn't be the same person now without doing that so and I, as i said had to do it so oh i've done many things in my life that weren't profitable but i always say that there was always a positive outcome as a result of it yeah they, um you know once I, I i built this website to help people find computer systems for retail and oh, I, invested, yeah. I invested a bit of money in it yeah uh, and i i didn't make really any money out of it but as a result of that website, I ended up getting a customer for my business that paid me copious amounts of money for me for many years. And uh, oh, okay. so yeah, yeah. there's always, there's always, even doing this podcast, I've never made a cent out of doing this podcast, but mm. I've actually done and been paid to do other podcasts for other companies and stuff as a result of my experience of doing this. So, you know, a bit like yourself. You know, I've sold model aeroplanes as well, and I learned a lot from it. Mm. Didn't make really any money out of it, kind of thing. Of course, I've had the flat out RC magazine and that that shut shop. Didn't make really any money out of that. But uh, but every everything was a stepping stone. You know, people would say to me, "We want to do a newsletter," and I go, "Yeah, yeah, I can do a newsletter. I can, can you?" I go, "Yeah, well, I've just got I've been doing an eighty four page magazine. Do you reckon I can't do uh, an yeah. eight page newsletter?" And they go, "Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So I go and make money out of that." So. Yeah, you know, sometimes out of out of something that isn't worth a lot of money, we can we, other things can stem from it. And as you said, you've you've got a bit different experience and stuff that's, that's held in good stead, and you've got the memories. You've yeah, got that's the memories right. and the, the stories memory. to tell about it, which I think is yeah. always a a positive as well. But I think your computer app idea is a good idea, actually. It was a good idea. I oh, see. I did that in two thousand and four into two thousand and five. Yeah. And nowadays, if you had to build it, you'd build it in in a week. Uh, and yeah. it'd be a lot simpler. But it was, I was I was ahead of my time. I'd like to think. And yeah. it was um, just the market wasn't there for it. It, it. it was basically like a lot of websites that are out there. You know, find a better insurance company. We'll match you up, and all these kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, my wife just finished working with a company that does similar kind of stuff like that. Okay. It's yeah. tough, tough. But also, yeah, people don't appreciate the amount of time you put into those things. It, especially with model aircraft. Well, but even 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 making app back in two thousand, like the amount of yeah. time you spent on that is just you know people oh, don't yeah, appreciate. Yeah. I spent a fair bit of time. Yep. Yeah, and with me, what people they come up and they say, "Oh, look, I've made this glider. Oh, I'm just gonna we'll just flop a mold off of it and make a molded one." And I said, "But." realize or they come up to me or can you just flop a mold off this like it takes like five minutes just to make a mold yeah. or something realize 
I said, yeah, I can make a model if it's going to cost this much because it takes a ridiculous amount of time to do it. The surface finish is not good enough, all this sort of stuff. So, you know, it, people don't appreciate how much No, it's, it's, it's definitely true. I think even nowadays in the era of, you know, Chinese manufacturing model planes and things like that where their labour is very cheap, if we mm. had to build the same thing in Australia with our, with our labour rates, it'd be yeah. astronomical, absolutely oh, that, astronomical. And that was the issue. That was the issue that I had yeah. was that. Well, you have a look at Ralph Learmont and Southern Sailplanes. Like, yeah, absolutely. How could he survive yeah. in this era? Oh, and he did, he did magnificent work. You know, those canopies that he made were just, I still don't know to this day how he made them. They were just phenomenal. They were extremely clear. Like, I would just love to have made a canopy that clear. Yeah. And they just fitted. You didn't have to cut them. I really should try to ring him. Mm. <laughs> but I think he's yeah, I'd, I'd love to know. I'd love to know he made that Kestrel. Because you, you, back in the day, you bought a Kestrel canopy and it was perfectly clear and it just fitted like beautifully and it was a quite a complex shape from memory um you know compared to mine i faff around for hours getting them to fit and uh they they're reasonably clear but not optically clear yeah gee let's move on and talk about this gps racing stuff which you're the guru right so i'm, I'm look i'm not the guru i'm a person in australia that does it yes one of you Right, and I, I wouldn't call myself a guru. I have had a bit to do with the technology side of it, but as for flying it, I'm just a person that does it. I know where the triangle is. Look, <laughs> I, I'm calling you the guru because there's nobody else that I'm talking to at the moment that understands GPS racing to the level, level that you you do. Okay. So, so you're a relative guru then. Uh, so, okay, so what I know about GPS triangle racing is you, you have – they're generally large scale gliders, and yep. they um, you have to fly a course, which is GPS coordinates, and you've got to do yep. laps, or I don't know what you need to do. What yep. what is it? What is GPS triangle? Well, how how did it start? Right, is a good. It started through the same reason I got into it through boredom, because what we what we're doing is I'm flying my scale gliders, and because I had this field near my house, I could just fly whenever I wanted, all the time, basically. And you got sick of launching, whether it was self-launch in the end, sick of self-launching and just thermaling around and flying for no reason. And to the point where, for me, I was about to give up on this on the hobby altogether. I think I've got to go and get something else to do. And what happened, I've got a good mate, Joe Rufin. <clears throat> he's, from, he's from Switzerland and he lives in the Barossa Valley here in South Australia. And he regularly goes overseas, a very keen aero modeler. He... Um, Always, he was every year he'd go overseas and he'd catch up with the European guys, early Neufnager and, and the and this like over there, and they'd come up with this idea. They were in the same boat. They love flying scale, large scale gliders, and they come up with the same thing that they just got a bit bored with just flying them around, and um, so they wanted to emulate what you do in a full size glider in a full size glider task. So you fly a task um, in a set time. Um, have turn points and all that, and they want to emulate that. So um, over a period of years, they developed um, this course, which is basically for it started. So it started off predominantly with scale gliders. So it's basically a 2.4 kilometer course. So um, where the pilot stands on the um, start finish straight, it's 500 meters either side of the pilot and 500 meters out in front of the pilot. You've got this triangle. The triangle, you only fly left-hand circuits in the triangle, so everyone's the same throughout the world. 
And um, you, with the scale gliders, you, you have to launch below 500 metres and slower than 120 kilometres an hour. And then once you've gone through the start gate, you've got 30 minutes to do as many laps as possible. You've got an onboard vario, you've got onboard telemetry to tell you where the turn points are. And you might, in the original gear, which was, uh, well, the, the original working gear was what's called a T3000 developed by RC Electronics. It had a tiny little triangle on it that, you know, you really have to take your eyes off the glider to see it, but you had that good a telemetry that you sort of knew where the course was and where you were going around the course. So to give you altitude, to give you vario. So you had basically the same decisions, um, the basically the same decisions to make as you would with full-size gliding, you know, whether you're going to, thermal or whether you're going to go around the course to get the, talk, the task done. And obviously then the person that gets the most laps wins, right? So um, Joe went over to Europe um, and Joe and I would fly together. Joe, he loves building his scale gliders and all that. And he'd come over and talk to me. And he said, look, I've seen this thing called GPS triangle racing. He said, we've got to do it. So he explained it to me. I said, sounds like we've got to do it, Joe. So Joe bought the two lots of the gear and um joe has been an absolute advocate for it but unfortunately joe has never really got into gps flying he's encouraged people to but myself he gave it to me i i love playing around with technology and it takes a bit of mucking around to get it to work and i went out about nine times before i even understood what i was where i was flying and what i was doing but once i did it i was just absolutely hooked and it's just um it's really it's kept me in the hobby definitely and i just i to this day and i've been doing it since when a long time i'm obsessed by it that's all i want to do (laughs) because it's just it's such a personal challenge and then they bought out then then they made an online competition so then you could upload all your flights uh online and um and yeah obviously in, in our winter the europeans would be winning in our summer we'd be having the most flights most laps and all that sort of stuff so then there was world records starting to happen and all this sort of thing and um yeah and uh yeah and wakery weather was just phenomenal for it it was really good so the models are generally what size are the models are you flying well the model you you want something that's at least six foot for the scale class so now so it's, it's really developed now which we'll talk about the changes in a minute but so the scale class started out, you want a glider at least six metres because you need to be able to see it at five to 600 metres high. So you really need, because probably the, the biggest loss of, of GPS gliders is people flying the wrong model and losing sight of it. And I've nearly done both. Fortunately, I haven't, but um, a lot of people lose their gliders because of that. So you, you need to make a really good visual altimeter on the bottom of the wing which is basically a, a different, you know, a, a stark colour. So I used to make, uh, well, my, my gliders are usually white with grey or black stripes underneath, so you can clearly see it. Um, and then, um, yeah, you need to have a glider at least of, of six metres. So seven metres was, was the ultimate size sort of thing to have and something that is usually composite that can fly fast and be very efficient. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah. So the, like the start back back in the day, the the good glider was about a Santeri's. Oh, that was six point six meters, and that was built specifically for GPS at the time, and that was a really tough glider, and uh, flew really well. And so yeah, I I started off actually started off GPS with one of my ASH 
with one of my ASH 26s in a foam core and a foam core wing and just used to fly that. And that's how I sort of learned to fly it. And I just um, yeah, had a ball with it. So Okay. And what, what does it progress to now? What are some of the changes? Well, so now, well, now some of the change because the issue with that is obviously because there's gliders, you know, the Bowder Sand Terries was a, a a reasonable price glider. You know, they were, you know, five to six thousand dollars. Whereas now, once once it started, once we started having, well, once we once GPS started having world uh, world um, competitions like and all those sorts of things. Um, then obviously everyone wants to have the best and the best and gliders have gone up. To, you know, you can pay $30,000 for a GPS, a big GPS glider if you want to. So obviously that doesn't appeal to everyone because um, it's ridiculously, it gets ridiculously expensive. So what they've, what they've come up with, so at the same time they had a sports class, which a sports class is like a five metre model. And um, then the, the triangle's smaller, so the triangle's 350 out from each from the pilot and you start at 400 meters because the glider is small and it can't weigh any more than seven kilos. So that was designed to sort of bring more entry level pilots into it and with just um, sort of um, gliders like a multiplex Alpina and things like that, which I'd bought one of those. But then again, um, you know, they have a, um, a world masters with those and then everyone designs and builds all these fantastic gliders. Mm -hmm. And then the sports class models were starting to get up to the same price as the scale gliders. So Again, it could, you know, people couldn't afford to get in it. So then Andre Bircher, the, the guy that actually makes the GPS gear, I'm pretty sure it was him. He come up with, him and the group come up with this idea of making what was called light class. So you can use like an F5J glider. And that's the best thing that ever happened um, because you can basically get an old, you're better off with an old F5J glider that weighs a bit more. And the course has got a lot smaller. So it's only 200 metres out, 200 metres high. And you've got 20 minutes to do as many laps as possible. Um, and the gear's got a lot cheaper too to, to run it. The gear has to be smaller, obviously. So he's made like an entry level set of GPS gear. Um, you've got an old F5J glider that you can start with. And with that, it's sort of really taken off now because um, uh, there's just a lot of people, especially in Europe, there's a lot of people in Australia that hasn't really taken off, but there's more people getting interested in Australia because of that. And I, love flying light class gps because it's it's easier it's easier to set up your, your glider is lower um you can have a lot more fun with it and because i can go flying with other people so yeah it's made it a lot easier well it's good that they made that those changes because i think uh sometimes we need that um you know it, it's always a case though you, you get into something and then uh, competition takes over and people spend more and more and more and more and then you need to do something different to bring it back yeah, yeah, you do. But look, the the sport does adapt a little bit to things like that. But yeah, not the price because some people just want to spend that money on gliders, which I, that's fair enough. If you've got the dollars to do it, I can understand that um, because you just want the performance. Um, but um, yeah, not everyone can do it. We need to get you know need to get more people in. I thought it was the best move they ever made to do that. So because the gear for the light class is so small, I think in America they have a hand launch. They have a hand launch competition where they do GPS with hand launch gliders and there's people that do GPS with little foam gliders and things like that. So they can just, whatever their club's got, you can actually do GPS racing with that. What is the gear that's needed? The the gear that's needed, you need a you need a transmitter. There's a little transmitter that goes in the in the glider and that has an inbuilt solid state vario, but then you can add a a proper compensated vario to it. And then you've got a little receiver 
that you put on your transmitter on your right you know your handheld transmitter somewhere and then you need a phone with it it's got an app on it and then the app the app has got a a bigger tri- the, the app's got the triangle on it. some people use to choose to use a phone i use a phone a lot of people choose to use a tablet on a tripod right and you need this app and they all talk to each other eventually once you get them all working which that's that's what i help with and um uh yeah you that you just watch it and listen through that so you get a lot of telemetry feedback about where you are on the course and then because of the large triangle you can see on your phone or your tablet you can sort of you get used to glancing um at both of them to see where you're going around the course i'm actually on the southern soaring league website there's some information on yeah, and I'll put all the information. So that's the easiest thing to do is to have a look in the I'll put all because I have heaps of people asking me. I was emailing people Word documents and all that. So I've uploaded it all to the Southern Soaring League website. It explains it all on there. There's heaps of links there to where you can get descriptions of all the different classes and what you need to start out with. And there's links there. There's uh, Mike O'Reilly from Model Flight. He's the agent for RC Electronics. So I've got links to all the gear that you need for each class in there. They've bought out another class now, which is called the 3.5 scale class. So it's designed to be done as it's the same task as a sports class glider. So it's lower and smaller, but it's designed to do with um, smaller scale gliders. So if you've got any scale glider, mm-hmm. um, you can just go out and do the, the, the 3.5 class. Now, look, you don't, if you, if you just go, it's a really, a real personal challenge also. I mean, look, it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic flying with people doing it. That is the most fun you would have ever um but if you don't want to you can also a lot of people just do it personally and i and i flew on my own for many many years and it's a real personal challenge because you're really fighting the elements it gives you something it's you know for me i'm extremely focused on doing it because you've got something to actually go out and do yeah you spend a lot of time on calm nights trimming the model to absolutely optimize it because yeah even with this fyj light class you i tell people at our club you know if you're going to do gps delete your f5j program at your radio and just put a gps program in because it's completely different you want the glider to fly straight really well and then to be out of thermal and then to fly straight really well again not you're not worried about landing and all those sorts of things you're worried just about those things um, so it's it's a lot different in the glider setup. So you spend a long time setting up your glider, and that for me is a, a a great amount of fun. And you can actually use the gear to set up, you know, to test your glide ratio. You can actually do polar flying with the gear to actually test the glide ratio of each particular glider, and you can send that off to RC Electronics, and they can tell you what your polar is of your glider and all those sorts of things. So, um, you know, and you can put ballast in, you can take ballast out. There's just it's never ending what you can do with it. It's just uh, really good. What would if a club wanted to start running these kind of competitions? Yeah. What would they have to do? Is it hard for them to set up or, or what? No, it's not. Well, you just have to. All you have to do is buy the gear. There's nothing on the ground to really set up because all you're doing is setting a virtual triangle up over the field. So as long as you've got the room, and for light class you don't need a lot of room. I mean, for scale class you need a fair bit of room. You need a kilometre long but um, for light class you don't need a lot of room um and you just need to have some people with the gear mm, okay. and the, and the gliders and all that kind of thing yeah 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 we'll just yeah so you 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 buy the app um because i've had a i've, I've known andre for uh, quite a number of years 
And because I live in the Southern Hemisphere, he has beta testers all around the world. So I've been one of his beta testers for a long time since he's bought out. Because originally we used to fly with a thing called a T3000, which was basically a modified full-size glider instrument um, that, that he's modified because he used to work for a glider instrument manufacturer. So that's where he's, his background is. He's a highly intelligent guy, a hell of a nice guy too. And um, although he can be pretty curt when you're flying with him, but he's, <laughs> a, he's basically a nice person. <laughs> I have flown with him. Um, he, uh, yeah, so he developed the gear from this T3000, which was pretty basic and it was still very good. I flew for that. I flew with that for many years, and then he's developed now this app-based one, so that you've got a larger screen basically, and so you can, you know, have your you can have your small screen, you can have a tablet, and whatever, so you can have a caller watching the tablet and watching the sky for you, and all those sorts of things. But yeah, so you have to buy you you buy the gear outright, but the um, the app because the app cost him so much money, and you'd know how much apps cost to develop. It cost him so much money to develop. You you have to pay a yearly subscription for the app. Yeah, that's right. It's cost but, associated with it. Yeah, but um, the the app does so much, and in the future, it's going to get to the point where you're going to be able to watch live racing on the internet and things like that. So, oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. There you go. That that that'll yeah. change the dynamic, and it's one of those things. I think we're in the infancy of it still, but it's one of those things. I think that. It's a bit like um, some of the other competitions that are available to us, like iMac and Patton. And once people get into it, they get sucked in for a while and, and enjoy that journey of, of mm, yeah. progression and refining models and gear. And then, you know, I've always said that the thing I love about gliding is that you're really flying in your environment. You're really – it's a very different to flying powered planes and that you're trying to, trying to guess where, where lift might be. And yeah, so yeah. you've got to be very aware of what's happening around you and the landscape and, and, and you know, if there's birds flying around and all that kind of thing. So it's um the GPS racing, which adds another another element to all of that, I suppose. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it adds several elements to it. Because, I, I you know, before that come along, I, I never used a Vario in a, in a scale glider. I used to, just to fly by looking at it. And now if I fly without a Vario, I just about feel like I'm flying naked. I, <laughs> I, feel like I, I just can't do it. And, um, you know, so whereas before before the GPS gear, you know, Vario's you would buy would be solid state Vario's. It'd be really annoying to listen to and all that sort of stuff. Whereas the once you get sort of honed into this glider with a proper compensated Vario, um, it is, you know, it's next level. You can, like you said, you can sort of, you can easily hone in where your thermals are and all that. And people say, oh, it's cheating and all that. But it's actually not because your thermaling is only a very small part of GPS flying. It's about making decisions about, you know, when to fly around the course, and that's what it's all about, really. And that's why it's for me, I'm still hooked on it. You know, how many like would most pilots get to the thirty minute time limit, or have to? Oh have yeah, to yeah. That? Most of the time you get, to, yeah, you most of the time you get to the thirty minute time. Because you're getting up to with the scale glider, especially you're getting up to five hundred meter with the F5J. Probably not so much if the the F the the light class is. A little bit governed if you start getting a bit of wind um it's sort of uh, you know f5j glider doesn't like to move forward too well i mean i've got mine you know a normal f5j glider would be anything between uh, 1100 grams to maybe a heavy one might be 1700 grams right whereas i fly mine at 2.7 kilos mm. oh sorry two points no 2.64 kilos um 
So I fly mine at 2.64 kilos. I just fly like that all the time. So if the weather's good, it really gets honking around the course. If the weather's not too good, it sort of comes down. But um, you've got to yeah, you've got to have that weight in there to do that. So okay. Mm. How, how many laps do people get normally? What's it? What's oh, it? Look, the world record for scale is um, I think is 22. Um, the um, I'm not sure. I think sports class is 24 or something. It's a lot more. I think. What's um, your best? Yeah. Uh, my best was when we did the online competitions. Was I used to fly a lot. Yeah, because I being a teacher, I used to get a lot of holidays over this Christmas break. So I just basically, if the weather, I've I've watched the full size gliding weather, and yeah. I would know when the thermals because I didn't have to go very far. I just had to jump a fence. I, I would know when the thermals are coming through just before the full size gliders would need the weather so I could sort of really watch it. So I just go out flying every day. And my wife thought I was crazy. She took a photo of it. I usually have a cutoff temperature of 38 degrees, but this one day it was absolutely going to be honking thermal. So I went out there, it was 42, and she took oh. a photograph of me thinking I was going to expire. <laughs> but what I would do, because I was crazy, what I'd do, I'd have a camelback. Because this, I, remembering I only had to walk um, 100 metres. I had my glider set up in my hangar at home. I carried across the fence, walked to probably 200 metres, realistically. And I'd walk out there, fly. So I'd be out there for 40 minutes. So I had a camel back on my back. I used to get a bucket, wet all my clothes down. I could survive out there at 38 degrees for 40 minutes before I'd start feeling the effects. And I'd hydrate myself all morning with, um, you know, all these energy drinks, not, not energy drinks, but, you know, the, the electrolytes. electrolytes and that sort of stuff. It was, it was, I, was, I was obsessed by it. And I would, uh, at the time, in this, in the, where we're doing this sort of thing, um, I was I'd done I think by the time it was at twenty seventeen I'd done oh but I know about four four and a half thousand GPS kilometres or something. Oh really? And um, I, my my the world record at the time was seventeen laps, and I got I got seventeen laps on a day where I did probably the worst flight I'd ever done because the the lift was just absolutely ridiculous and I almost lost my glider. Um, because it was going up so hard and I had to have it sit on 185 kilometres an hour all around the course just to keep it so I could see it. And I was missing turbines, I was doing everything. And then at the same time, someone beat the record and went up to 19, I think, so I didn't get that. But I'd won the, I did win the online competition that year in 2016. So I thought, oh, well, I'll go in the world comps next year. So I um, worked towards going in the world comps in 2017. And um, I did. I, I did go myself and a couple other guys went over there. And uh, when you get there, like doing what we were doing was absolutely nothing. You know, all as I, the only experience I had basically compared to the European guys is I knew where the triangle was. Yeah. <laughs> flying with other people and tactics was uh, it was a very steep learning curve. I was in a thermal in the world comps with thirteen gliders. Right. And we would have, they would have, uh, I think it was like four mid-airs a day for over a week. And it was just, it was just, it was, it was, it was such fun, but it was, yeah, you really had to watch it. And I, I I was happy to survive. I didn't do very well in the competition, but I survived the two weeks of flying and it was just an absolute ball. And I'd built my own glider to take over there. So, um, because at the time you couldn't, you couldn't, um, because I had, I think I had my Bowder Santeris and, um, uh, there was a, you could, there was a glider called an AN66, which Philip Cole would design that actually split down. But unfortunately, the company 
that built that folded so there was no glider that broke down into parts to take on a plane so i thought well i'll build one so i built a um i got one of my ash 26 i got uh, built a fuselage uh, turned it into an ash31 which is nothing in the fuselage and i made that so it split in half copied what philip Cole had done to split it in half so it's basically an interference fit tapered fit that you slam it together and then tape the fuselage together and that that mm. kept it together and then i made the wings so i made it all so the seven meter glider so it would fit in an 1850 mil box and i reverse engineered a known because i'm no good with wing sections and all that i have nothing i don't have any idea about wing sections um so i reverse engineered the, i had a I, through all the other stuff i'd done i had a nice cnc machine um, I had 3D printers and all that sort of stuff. So what I did over a period of a month, I reverse engineered the wing section off of a known good GPS glider. I won't mention the brand. Mm-hmm. And I, I put there, I, it took me a month just to get the wing kilt that's off of it. I like mechanically doing it. So I'd make cut out a wing section on my on my CNC machine, put the template on there, go into Profili, modify the wing section until I got a whole wing of wing sections right and then i drew it up in 3d a basic 3d cad program and then um, through help of joe i um, cut out a set of molds out of molds out of mdf um, because um, i get bored really easily with projects and um, normally the process would be you'd cut out a plug of a wing and then finish all that up and then take a mold off of it which you have to make the mold out of carbon fiber and Number one, that would be really expensive. And number two, any point, as I've learned doing composites over the years, any point of the process, you'd end up, you could throw the whole lot in the bin. So I didn't want to do that. So I talked to Joe. He was a furniture maker. He said, well, why don't you make, cut the, the molds out of MDF? So he told me a way you could stabilize MDF. I made a cut a practice one out and um, thought, yeah, that'll work. So I cut out a set of seven meter molds on my, CNC machine, like one main panel half would take like 20 hours of cutting because I'd be cutting it that fine to make the wing section as accurate as I possibly could and um, finished it all in a proper way. And Joe helped me take molds off of it. He helped, sorry, he helped me lay up the wings in the mold and a, wait, a mate of mine, Wayne Jones, come over from Melbourne and helped me finish off the wings. And together we got the thing going and um, it flew. Um, Brilliantly at the time, it flew really well. It's, um, and I was very happy with it. It flew exactly the same as the glider I had copied, which I was pretty happy with that. And um, so I packed it up, flew it a few times, and um, was very happy with the setup. Made it also just to get a plane overseas. You know, I mean, I know you've had a lot of people that have flown overseas, and they, they would attest to that also, just to get a plane overseas and have it survive. <laughs> is well so i um so i'd worked it out that, so i made this plane up it was all the whole thing was um, molded carbon fiber so in itself was pretty strong joe always thought it was too heavy and he said oh, you should make it ridiculously light but i said then if it gets wrecked in the airport i said there's no point so i made it a bit heavier so it still wasn't ridiculously heavy it was it was a good weight i thought so I made up a core flute box and 3d printed up wheel brackets and so i could put rollerblade wheels on it and all that and the thing survived four trips overseas, and um, I've only just recently sold it to a mate of mine in New Zealand who's going to do the same thing with it. And um, yeah, we I went to two world comps, one in Germany and one in Spain, and went to Spain 
to do a recce trip before the world comps to fly with my mate early over there. And I went to New Zealand with it once. And I, saw, I was sitting at the window of the plane once when I seen the guys loading it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they just grabbed it by these straps and basically just chucked it. Even though I had fragile written all over, they just chucked it up the ramp. And I think I made the box so the whole thing could be loaded upside down and it'd still be okay. And it survived all those all those trips. So I had a I had a mechanical device in it that could tell how much load it was under on the flight. And I think the last flight home that got really badly bent. So I knew it got treated poorly there, but still nothing broke. So it survived that. Um I survived the flying, you know, flying for two weeks straight with it over there. So I was pretty happy with that. So Jay, a lot of experiences yeah. there. Now what what models are you currently flying? What's your mind? Um, you apparently, I've got a well. I've I've got I, I listened. I've listened to your podcast before. I hear all these people that have got hundreds of models and all that. I've um, through life experience and friends of mine that have got sick and have you know um, sadly died and all those sorts of things. I've seen the things that they have done with their lives, and I've sort of decided to consolidate everything. So what I've done is I've sold up most of my models. I've sold all the models that I've I've made basically. And um, uh, being friends with Mike O'Reilly, he's had some good models he wants to sell me. So I've bought some really good models. So currently I've got a um, Bowdus, um ASW22 GPS version. So that's an 8.8 metre fully moulded rocket ship, basically. That's mm. just phenomenal. And I've, I've built a nose drive in that, so that's all self-launched. So that's a 8.8 metre glider that weighs... Uh, with ballast, the, the ballast that I fly weighs about uh, 18 kilos. Gee. And that'll, that motor, I've got a dual sky motor in it, that rips it up to 500 metres, or sorry, 480 metres in a minute. What dual sky motor is it? Oh, I can't. It's a, it's a big one. It's the one that's designed for a, about a 19-inch prop. I can't remember the number off the top like of my head. Like a 40cc or something. Is it a big, really big diameter? Yeah, it's a really, it's a 60 mil diameter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've yeah, got. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's I've got really, really I've got a. Yeah, I just bought a Pike Paradigm, which is the latest, absolute latest uh, sports class model that Philip Cole's designed. And mm. I just flew that the other week. That thing's phenomenal. That'll rip up to four hundred. Uh, that weighs about uh, what's it, about five kilos at the moment. I'm going to get some more ballast for that. That gets up to four hundred meters in less than thirty seconds. Gee. At that so you hand launch that and if i see yeah, if i switch the motor off at 350 it'll go to 450 oh, just through the energy so yeah it's pretty good and i've got a um f5j f5j light class glider for gps and i've got my the last remaining model i've got of my own is a scale fox that i built as one of my kids actually my son and myself built it so yeah so through all that yeah my son we used to go aerotone together when he was a teenager so i've got that well you still got a few planes uh you know yeah, I still... yeah. so i've consolidated everything down to planes that i really want to fly all the time i just thought if i've got i've had tow planes and all that and i've had them there and my i had a wilga tow plane that i built and that was a phenomenal tow plane but the thing would sit there for probably eight months of the year and then i'd have to replace the batteries and replace the fuel lines and all that when i want to go out and fly I didn't really enjoy flying it at the end, so I thought I well, might as well sell it. So I've just basically sold up everything and consolidate, use that money because I've always had to sort of generate my own money for to to pay for aero modelling. So I use that money to buy all these really good gliders, basically. So 
it's um yeah that's what and i'm enjoying that so i built myself a really nice trailer and um, i've got everything in there so i could just go out there and basically fire for the whole day i uh ever since i had uh jason arnold on who on the podcast that said he had he only owns one model yeah i've i became saying to my friends imagine if you just owned one glider yeah, yeah, how yeah. much easier would life be? No trailers or anything to put in the back of the car. Yeah, you know, right. we've got boxes full of paraphernalia that go along with the hobby that we just keep on amassing. We'd get rid of that. My wife would love me again because I'd she'd have all this spare space and wouldn't have stuff all over the place. I think, yeah. gee, life would be simple, wouldn't it? And it's something it very appealing. Be, yeah. Imagine if I just had a glider, no more powered planes. But um. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, though. That's the only thing. Because uh, yeah, oh, look, I, I'm building a power plane. I, I've, I've warbirds interested me. I just haven't got around to doing it. But I'm building a um, a, 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 I think it, I can't remember the brand of it, but I'm building a two and a half meter Pilatus Porter from a kit at the moment. So that right. will build that. So you're still pretty active in building stuff, then. Yeah, I've had a, I've had a, I'm, I'm sort of not going to build any more composite gliders. I think I've done with that. I really, because now that I've joined, because when I flew up there on my own, I, um, you know, I just um, had time to spare, so I built stuff. So, um, you know, I've sort of been there, done that. So now that I'm a member of a club down here and we've got a good, uh, you know, we've got good club members, enjoy, I really enjoy going out and meeting with them and flying rather than staying over building. So that's why I've sort of decided to really back off the building side of it. Um, I still, I still, I build, I make lots of stuff, like not necessarily all model stuff, but I make, I've got, you know, 3D printers and CNC machines and all that. And I like making stuff and I help people make stuff and whatever. But, um, yeah, I really want to get right into enjoying my flying and the camaraderie that there is out of the club. Yeah, it's a big one. I'm still buzzing from uh, attending an event a few weeks ago. And uh, as I was saying to a friend of mine today, you know, sometimes these fun fly events, they're not great flying events. You don't get a lot of flights in like you would normally do on a general day, but, it's the social aspect that is the great thing is yeah, other people and seeing seeing other models and, and all that kind of stuff. So no doubt you get to some of the major events, you know, drilled or anything like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, there's always there. Oh, I can you give us a hand with this? So you get to fly their models and all that sort of stuff. So I enjoy doing that. And yeah, it's, it's I really enjoy that aspect of it. Try to, you know, trying to get people interested in GPS is is good too. It's not easy. It hasn't been easy in Australia to do that, but um, we're slowly getting there. So there's, there's a few you know, um, I think when COVID was on, I did a few YouTube series on, um, you know, what you know, did a few um, Zoom sessions on it and all that. And there's um, some really good Zoom sessions the European guys did. And that sort of stimulated a lot of people to get into it in Australia. So that's um, that's good. So Mike's, Mike sold lots of the gear, but people just aren't using it, Okay, so if people want to find out more about... Um... GPS triangle racing. What's the best portal for them to go to? Well, I've, I've got a Facebook. Um, there's an Australian GPS triangle racing Facebook page, so you can join that. Um, you can get onto the SSL website and have a look at the gear on there. You can contact me through Facebook is fine. Um, and, um, yeah, just uh, get out there and give it a go. Or come and, yeah, come and see. We're, next year we're having a big uh, – we're having our – 50th anniversary um, international event out at Malang, and that's going to go for over a week. And we're getting um, Philip Kolb's coming out to actually do some um, do some GPS talks and to fly GPS and to 
do some uh, training sessions and he's going to fly in our competitions and all those sorts of things. So we're hoping that that's going to stimulate. We've got lots of people already showing interest on that. Um, lots of people showing interest doing light class. Um, so um, we're, we're doing that. We have um, we have a regular, well, it's, now it's going to be a regular GPS event in about September here at Malang. And we had people come from all around Australia for that. Um, that was a good event. So um, once people, if people can get half the enthusiasm that I've got, they're going to absolutely love it. Because once you get people flying around the course together, you get four or five gliders flying around the same yeah. course. It just changes the whole why it happens and it's um like i said really competitive it's um you know but it's not absolutely full-on like someone made a comment come up to me after that weekend and said they couldn't believe how relaxed the whole competition was because we have what's called a challenge cup so you've got we had four days where you've just got to go out and do gps and then at the end of the four days the best six flights win sort of thing so you know you might jag the right weather and go up and do 12 laps as one guy did and um, then you might go out and have a go and you might get two laps sort of thing but um, you can do that so it's very so you just fly whenever you want you can have as many flights in the day as you want and uh, you, or you just stand around and talk about it so it's um, it's a really relaxed competition that's how it started in europe it's turned into a massive thing now very competitive heaps of people like you know they have 45 entries for all the competitions over there and all that but it actually started out with guys wanting to travel to every country in Europe, just having, because it's very social over there, like they're into their drinking and eating and, you know, parties afterwards. And, um, you know, when we go to Spain, they have a French night and a German night and a Swiss night and a South African night and all that with food. And it's just such a really good, relaxed time. The atmosphere is just fantastic. And that's, that's the part I love about it. And, you know, as I said, the people that I've met through it um, is, you know, is, really good um i just i don't take that for granted at all um so yeah look i know if i could get some people in australia to to experience that i think it would be really good well i've just joined the australian scale gps soaring uh, facebook page uh, so that's a good i think a good thing to uh for people to keep in contact with so visit the get onto facebook australian scale gps soaring people with the building uh, when i put my paradigm together i'd put put posts on there of how I set the gear up and all that. So people are putting heaps of stuff on there. There's people from all around the world on there. So you can ask questions on there. <clears throat> As I said, message me. Um, yeah. And um, just, uh, yeah, give it a go. Yep, sounds good. Okay. We're up to that final question. Yeah. That question everybody can't wait to hear the answer to. And it's going to be an interesting answer from you because uh, you've had a fair few different models and built many, many models. What has been your all-time favorite model? Well, it would have to be this ASH 31 GPS version that I built. Um, even though look, the models I've got now, the, the ASW22 and the Paradigm, are absolutely fantastic gliders like this. The 22, to see a, a nine metre glider doing beat ups on the strip yeah. is pretty oh, cool. That'd be awesome. But, but what, um, yeah, the personal achievement for me with this ASH 31 building it, taken over competing we had some flights in at the last Spain world championships where you're flying just before you know like just at dusk sort of thing and we're all just cruising around i'm cruising around with these guys that are world champions and we're all flying together and i had this trim thing it was just so peaceful trimming it i was just flying it on the trims basically i do the turn fly it on the trim 
do the turn flight on the trim and that was phenomenal i had a flight there where i got really low I, i'd done we had a really good flight where we were doing 11 laps which was pretty good for a competition Every, everyone did 11 laps by the way but you have to get back and land on the strip and um at tortosa the strip is very small and um you're flying basically over people's um uh blocks and things like that so over people's vineyards and all those sorts of things and, and at one point you actually go behind a tree if you're coming in low and i went down and i went and usually what you wish for is as you get to the last turn point when you're really low that you're going to get a little bit of lift and it'll just get you home and um i've got this photograph that i that uh, i took of the bush that i had to look through in the v to see the glider coming from turn point oh, three I've, I've seen and my that, yeah. caller there my caller's there yelling out start your motor start your motor." Because if you start your motor you get zero for the fly i've done 11 laps he said start your motor i said i think it'll be okay i think it'll be okay and this thing just kept gliding and gliding and gliding it was probably the stupidest thing i ever did but i popped it up over this bush and landed it i think two meters short of the landing area but I was just so, so overwhelmed, you know, with that having that performance and having that happen. It was just a phenomenal flight, and that's why I would definitely pick that model. Is because of the flights that I've had. It survived four flights overseas, um, and I was one of you know out of probably a hundred models that were there. Um, there was probably about four or five models that were handmade, you know, that weren't yeah. produced. Oh, yeah, just for that. I mean, I only come 17th in the competition, but I was pretty happy with that. So That's awesome. Uh, nah, yeah, right. so that, that, that would have to be my all-time favourite model, I would say. So. Well, I've been but, staring at your Facebook page and having a look at the uh, different models that you've got, and I must say I like all of them because I do like modern gliders. That is my preference. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And that's what you've been building, so everyone is a winner in my book. John Copeland, it's been a pleasure having you on the Flat Out RC podcast. I now know more about GPS triangle racing and whilst you've been talking, I've been sitting there staring at things. You know, when that aero modeler gets that look in their eye, that glint in their eye that this is something that I need to do. I started to get that. I had to pinch myself to say you don't have enough time. But anyway, I was sitting there looking at it. So I've joined the Facebook group so I can join in and see and observe. Uh, I do have an F5J glider that could possibly be set up, but I'm very slow at doing things like that. But anyway, yeah, yeah, no, that's no, all. It's all good. So it's uh, it's pretty easy to get set up once you get in there. So that's right. And look, if any if anyone's ever got like, don't hesitate to call call me because I'm the I do visit the gear when you buy it new. It's not it's not plug and play by any stretch of the imagination, right? So you do have to um, sort of have some a few minor computer skills to probably get it going. Uh, most people are okay with it, but if anyone buys it and gets frustrated with it, please don't hesitate to contact me because I'm the I'm the sort of the contact for it in Australia. So don't hesitate to contact me. I'm more than happy to help people set their gear up. Yeah, so John Copeland, J-O-H-N Copeland, C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D on the Facebook, send John a message and get in contact. John, pleasure to, to, to meet you and have you on the podcast and uh, happy flying. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Andrew. Good to talk to you. About to leave. Already packing, come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Another week down. And a big thank you to John Copeland for joining us. I found out more about GPS Triangle Racing and it sounds really, really interesting. Uh, it, like, 
six meter wingspan gliders always look cool. Wouldn't that be good? Getting up there and it's actually it's funny. It's like you've got to you, you'd have to really be thinking a lot. Uh, so if you want to get in touch with John, just get onto Facebook and um, become a friend with him, John Copeland, C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D, and uh, he's happy to answer any questions if you want to look into getting uh, getting into it. All the all the equipment's available. Um, you know, get yourself a glider, and I, I do like those ideas of you know getting some of those uh, F5J gliders uh, and uh, converting them for GPS triangle racing. I think that sounds interesting as well. So always love gliding. Always say I love gliding, and I'm hoping this summer I can have a bit of a, a bit of a crack at a few, a few thermals. So I'll be back next week. Uh, we will have a guest. Uh, we're going to a younger aero modeler next week. Just a little tip. Haven't recorded the interview yet, but it is coming. So stay tuned. Big thank you for joining me. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. Join the Flat Out RC Peanut Gallery. There's plenty of members of the Peanut Gallery. Uh, and don't forget, YouTube channel. Get on board. Have a look at our latest video, uh, the Warbirds Over Bandsale event. Hopefully, I'm trying to, I'll just try to do some videos over over the holiday period as well when I go out for a fly. So uh, stay tuned. Plenty more to happen. Get out there. Get out flying. Weather's getting better. Summer's coming down here. Winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Get building. No excuses. We'll be back next week. <laughs>